anyways, uh, we're looking at, at Luke 18. Uh, we're starting in verse 18 and going to verse 30. And uh, this is God's word to us. And a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God, for it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, What is impossible with men is possible with God. And Peter said, See, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time, in the age, uh, in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Let's pray together. Our Lord Jesus, we thank you that your words are so challenging to us and uh, they're so rich um, They're so layered and that you invite us to enter into your words and to wrestle with them uh, and we find that they're actually wrestling with us. And when we think we're working on your word, it, it turns out it's actually working on us. And we ask that now by your Holy Spirit, your word would work on us, that it would produce faith in us. It would teach us uh, uh, about uh, money and uh, the effect it has on us in our spiritual life. We pray that you would teach us about the kingdom of God. Um, open our hearts as we open our hearts to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So I, I have to admit that this passage I struggled quite a lot with uh, this week as I was trying to figure out what is this passage about. Um, if you've been uh, coming to church here for very long, you'll notice that a lot of times when I give a title for the sermons, I try to have like one word to describe what I'm talking about, and that kind of helps discipline me to, I just gonna, I'm not going to say everything that this passage has to say. I'm going to try to s- simplify it to talk about one thing. So, you know, like children last week or prayer or self-righteousness or something like that. I take one little topic. And so uh, this week, I'm, I'm, try- I'm looking at this passage. Well, what's it about? And, uh, you know, on the surface, it seems like it's about wealth, right? It's a, this rich ruler comes to Jesus, and uh, Jesus tells him to... Uh, st- sell everything that he has and uh, to give to the poor and to follow him. And then Jesus says, you know, it's, it's very hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. It's harder, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle. And, uh, and then the disciples say, well, look at us. We, we've left everything. We've gotten rid of all of our riches uh, to follow you. So on the one hand, it seems like, uh, what is our relationship to money, to wealth? Uh, how should we handle that? But on the other hand, uh, you know, the passage begins with, this ruler coming and asking Jesus a question. What should I do to inherit eternal life? 
So in some ways, maybe this passage is about how do you go to heaven when you die, right? Because uh, Jesus says, you know, the commandments uh, do these. It's all about how do you enter the kingdom. Uh, the end of the passage, he says, if you leave me, you'll have, uh, you'll have eternal life in the age to come. So which is it about? What are these two things? Wealth and uh, eternal life. Do I have a place in the kingdom? Entering the kingdom, what do those thing, two things have to do together? Well, I think they have... Uh, so, kind of a strange connection with e- each other. And uh, let, me, let me try to explain the way that the Lord's piece these together for me this week. I've been uh, reading uh, Andre Agassi's um, recent autobiography called Open. I don't know if any of you have seen that. It's been a bestseller. It's about uh, his... Uh, um, the part I'm in has been about him growing up, uh, learning to play tennis. He had a father who was um, ruthless and just drilling him, he said, from when he was born, you are going to be the number one tennis player in the world. And so every day he was drilling him. He had this ball machine called the Dragon that just shot balls at him constantly, constantly, way harder. And, and his dad's yelling at him. And, uh, and his, it, the whole plan was that he was going to become a great tennis player and make his family rich. And uh, there's actually there's this one story where uh, they're at their tennis club in Las Vegas, and Jim Brown, Jim Brown was one of the best football players in, in history, walked into this club where they played tennis and he was supposed to be meeting someone to play a match and the person didn't show up so Agassiz's dad went up to him and says hey you need a match my son will play you he's nine at the time Agassiz's nine and here's the best football player in the world you know one of the best athletes in the world and the, the football player says I'm not gonna play a nine-year-old I only play for money and and Agassiz's dad was said well I'll bet my house that he'll beat you and he says what are you talking about and he's like uh he's like all right Jim Brown says I'll bet you ten thousand dollars that I can beat your son and that's basically Agassiz's family's life savings. His dad goes home and brings out of their safe cash, $10,000 of their life savings, he says. And all of a sudden, Agassiz's whole tennis upbringing, is all, his family's savings are on his shoulders. You better beat this guy. To, and it turns out, actually, they play a little bit, and Jim Brown says, all right, let's make it $500. And, and Agassiz beats him for the $500. But the whole thing is that the point of tennis is to make money. That's the purpose, that's the good, that's what tennis is for, is for making money. And actually later uh, in, the, uh, in the book, there's another story where Agassiz's playing soccer, and uh, his da- inst- he's playing in a soccer game instead of practicing tennis, and his dad comes into the middle of the soccer game, yanks him out, throws him in the car, tells him to take off his soccer clothes. He says, you're not playing soccer anymore, and this is, this is what it says. Uh, As we drove home, my father says without looking at me, you're never playing soccer again. I beg him for a second chance. I tell my father that I don't like being by myself on that huge tennis court. Tennis is lonely, I tell him. There's nowhere to hide when things go wrong. No dugout, no sideline, no neutral corner. It's just you out there naked. He shouts at the top of his lungs, you're a tennis player. You're going to be number one in the world. You're going to make lots of money. That's the plan, and that's the end of it. So for Agassiz's father, uh, tennis is a means of making money. What that means is that money is an artificial reward. Let me try to explain what I mean by that, an artificial reward. You know, I, I, play, I like to play tennis. Uh, if, if any of you know Tyson Smith, who comes to church here, he's not today, here today. We, we play tennis quite a lot. I grew up playing tennis. And, and, you know, there's one hand where there's a natural reward in tennis, where if you play and you learn to play, then, you know, when I ace Tyson, which is quite frequent, uh, uh, <laughs> 
He's not here to, to say with us, true or not. You know, that's a natural reward. I, or, or just having a good rally with him and we're hitting well and, and being out on the court and having that experience, it's a natural reward to, for, uh, for playing tennis. And, and all kinds of things that way. You know, if you fall in love, the natural reward is you get married and you get to have a partner for the rest of your life. It's, it, it goes with the work you're doing. You know, if you're learning a new language, the natural reward is you actually get to Speak the language. You get to speak French. You get to go to France and pretend like you're from France and you're a local or something like that. That's a natural reward. Money is an artificial reward. It has nothing to do with the work that you're doing. Do you see what I'm saying? Money, money and tennis, what do money and tennis have to do with each other? They're not related. It's an artificial reward. Now, that doesn't mean that's not a bad thing. That's just the way, uh, that's just the way money is. But one of the questions is, is what is heaven? Is heaven an artificial reward? Is it basically, we do a bunch of work here, we work really hard, and we're obeying a bunch of rules that God's given us, and we're doing certain things, and then there happens to be this arbitrary paycheck at the end of our life that you get to live forever. Or is eternal life that we've begun something here, and now eternal life is the consummation of something that we've already tasted here, we've already experienced, and now it's the fulfillment. It's like getting to speak French or getting to play jazz when you've been practicing and uh, what Jesus says is that for this young ruler in this passage, he, doesn't, he sees heaven as an artificial reward. He sees it like his money. I know how to make money. And eternal life is just the grand prize. And, I, and I'm gonna, I, just like I know how to make money, I know how to get the grand prize of eternal life. And that's what he wants to know from Jesus. And Jesus says that his money has been training him in, in, in how to see God in a certain way. Unless he unlearns what money has taught him, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And so wealth is, is teaching us something about God. And uh, I think Jesus wants us to unlearn some of those things so that we can understand money and wealth in the right way. So as we look at this passage this morning, I just want to say two things. First of all, that wealth will blind you from your real poverty. Wealth will blind you from your real poverty. Okay? Second of all, Jesus actually wants to make you rich. <laughs> Jesus wants to make you rich. Some of you say, Jesus wants to make me rich? Is that really true? I, really, I think Jesus wants to make you rich. Not in the way you think, but he wants to make you rich. So, uh, first, wealth will blind you uh, to your real poverty. Now, um, this passage begins with a... says that a ruler asked him, asked Jesus. Actually, we know from the other Gospels, this is a young man. He's quite successful. You know, maybe he's kind of, we might imagine, kind of a young professional, good at making money, entrepreneur or something like that. Uh, um, and uh, he's young and he's wealthy, so he's often called the rich young ruler. And he asked Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, Jesus isn't saying, you know, when he says, why do you call me good? He's not saying whether he's good or not. And he says, when he says no one's good except God alone, he's not saying whether he's God alone. What he's doing is he's giving this, this rich young ruler a little picture of what he wants to teach him. And the one thing he wants to teach him is you're not as good as you think you are. No one is good except God alone. And the way that he does that to show him that uh, he's going to lead him into a little trap. And this is what he does. It says in verse 20, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your mother and father. 
And he said, all these things I've kept from my youth. Now, if you know the Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments are kind of broken up into two parts, right? There's the first four commandments, which are about loving God. You know, have no other gods before me. Don't make an image of God. Don't use the Lord's name in vain. Keep the Sabbath. So the first four are about loving God. And the last six are about loving your neighbor. And Jesus takes five of the last six and tells them to this rich young ruler and says, have you kept these commandments? Five of the six. And the five that he chooses are the things that are very easy to measure, right? Uh, have, you, have you murdered anyone? <laughs> have you cheated on your wife? Do you lie? Did you honor your mother and father? Do you obey them growing up? Uh, have, you, you know, have you lied to someone? For the most part, the kinds of things that a good moral person could say, yeah, I haven't done any, I don't do any of those things. They're very, uh, they're kind of external. And uh, the one that Jesus leaves out, he leaves out one of the six, is the last commandment, you shall not covet. Which is the one commandment that has to do with the ruler's money. What do you really love? It's something that you can't measure on the outside. I mean, you can look at someone and say, have they murdered anyone? I don't know if they've murdered anyone. But the last one, it's only a heart issue. It's a question of what do you really love? Do you love possessions? Do you look at your neighbors and say, I want their possessions. I want uh, what they have. I want more money. What do you really love? And it turns out uh, that Jesus is leading him. He's giving him this sense of like, oh, yeah, I've done all those commandments. And then Jesus brings him with this. One thing uh, is still lacking. Sell all you have and give to the poor and follow me. And uh, what Jesus, and it turns out that this rich young ruler gets sad because he has many possessions. And he doesn't, uh, he doesn't want to give up his possessions because that's really where his heart is. And Jesus is revealing to him the real state of his heart. Now, I think what happens after that is what's, what was really interesting to me in this passage. It says in verse 24 this, Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult is it for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, when I hear that, I don't know how you hear that. You know, it's, it's hard for rich people to come to God and put their faith in God and, and to have a relationship with God, that kind of makes sense to me, right? I'm like, oh, yeah. I, it, you know, rich people seem very, uh, you know, they're maybe self-confident. They're self-sufficient. They've been able to get wealth for themselves. And they, maybe they have this sense of, like, they don't need God because they can kind of do things on their own. And so, yeah, I think it would make sense that maybe poor people would be more likely or people with less money would be more likely to pursue God because they're more needy, they need a crutch, and rich people are more kind of self-sufficient, stuff like that. But the opposite thing happens um, uh, right after this. Um, The next verse says that those who heard it said, then who can be saved? For some reason, the people listening to Jesus think the opposite that I do. See, I think... The rich are the least likely to believe in God and have faith in God. They think they're the most likely. They're like, if the rich don't even enter the kingdom of heaven, how is anyone else going to enter the kingdom of heaven? It's like, how does that make sense? Well, what we have to understand is that in Jesus' culture, the view that people had of God was that if you're a good person, God will bless you. And if you're a bad person, then God will curse you. That's how it works with God. You know, they're like Job's friends. If you know uh, this story of Job, Job uh, was a rich man and he loses everything. His family dies. He's got boils all over his body and everything's setting on fire and he's losing everything. And all his friends say, you must have sinned. That must be it because the way it works with God is if you're a good person, God will bless you. And if you're a bad person, then uh, 
God will curse you. And so the expectation, actually, religious leaders in Jesus' day were expected to be very wealthy, have a lot of money. And, uh, and so what they're saying is, wow, if the wealthy people, they're the good people, they're the people who have God's favor, who must be doing what God wants them to do. That's why they're so rich. If they can't even be saved, how can anyone else be saved? And um, the reality is, um, the reason why it's hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven is because rich people believe uh, that they're capable. They believe that they're good. And oftentimes when we have a lot of money, we, think, we still think that, actually, the way that they think in the back, thought back then is, you know, look at God's blessed my life. I must be in favor with God because all these good things are happening. I'm very capable. If eternal life, if that's a possibility, you know, I, I was able to uh, start a business. I have been able to be successful in this life. I must be able to work my way and get that paycheck of eternal life. Show me how to do it. And that's what the, that's what the rich young ruler is saying is that he believes that I can do the things to attain eternal life. And that's not how you find eternal life. Eternal life only comes through Jesus. It's through knowing him. It comes as a miracle of grace. And so uh, it turns out that he doesn't get that because when Jesus says, you want eternal life? Come follow me. Come be with me. (laughs) And what does he do? He says, no, I want to be with my riches. He doesn't get that eternal life comes through Jesus. You know, in John 17, Jesus says exactly that. He says, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Eternal life, that's what eternal life is, is simply knowing God and Jesus, through Jesus. And so... What he understands is that eternal life is, is an, an artificial reward. Tell me the Ten Commandments that I need to do. I'll do those things, and then I get my paycheck at the end. Jesus says eternal life is a natural reward. If you just come to me, that's just then you're already tasting eternal life. And when you die, you're going to get the fullness of what you've already tasted when you come to me. Come to me, and it'll, you'll just have the fullness. That's what, I am life. If you come to me, you'll have life. And so uh, the first thing is that wealth... For this rich young ruler has blinded him both to the state of his heart and uh, has blinded him to the fact that life is found in Jesus. It's not something he can earn. It's not something that he can use his capability, his competence, his virtue uh, to get to. It's something that can only be given to him. But the second thing is this. This is this, uh, the second piece of our wealth, uh, of understanding our wealth, is that Jesus still promises to make us rich. Jesus still promises to make us rich. And I think this is in two ways. He promises to make us rich by giving us himself. And second, by giving us the church. He's going to give us two things that will make us rich. Himself and the church. So first, by giving us himself. He wants to make us rich. Now, Jesus saying in verse 22, this is kind of a famous one. Sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Now, most people, when they come to this passage, the first question is, are all Christians supposed to do that? Is what Jesus is saying? That if you're going to be a Christian, you need to sell everything well, you know, and give it to the poor. Well, there wouldn't be very many Christians if that was true. I don't know anyone who's done that. But we also know from the very next chapter the story of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus is someone who uh, uh, was a rich tax collector, and he converts, and he puts his faith in Jesus, and he gave half of what he had to the poor. And Jesus says salvation has come to this household. So uh, what that means is uh, giving everything away is not normative. 
because Zacchaeus only gave half, which is still quite a lot for us, uh, and, and he had found salvation. Um, so I, I think one of the things that we do want to take away from this is that Jesus does have an expectation for people who follow him that they are going to be radical in their generosity. They are going to be different than the world. They are going to look differently than how they spend their money and, and the things that they give their money to. And, uh, um, and the reason for that is because look at how much God has spent on us. You know, God, uh, Jesus, who was rich in heaven, he was with God, he had, uh, um, had became poor. He sold everything. God sold everything so that he might save us and draw us to himself so that, that we might become rich in him. Actually, this is, that's what Second uh, Corinthians says. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. That was for your sake he became poor so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. That's what God's done for us. And when that begins to shape us, that God became poor for us so that we might become rich, uh, we uh, let uh, loosen the tight, uh, tight hold that we have on our money and we seek to be generous because those are the kind of people we want, uh, that God is making us to be. And, you know, and so you, you, know, you look in the, uh, in the Old Testament, uh, there was a, uh, the Old Testament practice was that there was a tithe, a tenth of everything that came in. Uh, God's people uh, would uh, give uh, basically to the church, but that would be given for caring for the poor, um, uh, caring for kind of uh, the temple and synagogue, uh, you know, running well and stuff, caring for the priests, giving food for the priests and things like that. But on top of that, they would also, um, they were supposed to, when if they had a field, if they were a farmer, they were supposed to leave the edges of the field um, unpicked so that the poor could come and pick from their edges. And they were also supposed to, when they had a brother who was in need, be generous with their money and give to their money uh, as, on top of these things so that they had a lifestyle of, of being generous. And, and this is in the Old Testament. And now we've had God who's come and been so generous with us. The question is, of course, we're going to be at least that generous. Now the Holy Spirit's come and transformed us and given us uh, n- new hearts of course we're going to be more generous and, uh, and radical in our giving. So that's certainly a calling for a Christian. But, you know, when I think of this, um, you know, Jesus saying this, man, sell all that you have and give it to the poor. You know, right now I feel like that's unlikely that I would do that. Um, but in, in Matthew's version of this story, it says that Jesus looked at him and he loved him and said, sell all you have and give to the poor and come follow me. He was loving him. This was a loving thing to do. And I mean, I think, I think it's loving in the sense that he was showing this man his heart, but also he was offering this man to come be with him. He was offering to him to come and, and walk with him. And, you know, I think about that. I think of some of you, if you had the opportunity, Jesus is standing right here, and he says, you can sell everything and come be with me. You can come walk with me. You can learn teaching from my mouth and watch me uh, do my work. I actually think some of you would do it. I think I might do that. Uh, because the opportunity to be with Jesus and actually learn from his mouth, and that's what Jesus was offering him, was you can come and be one of my disciples. I mean, look, the disciples uh, have written scriptures. They've transformed history. They got to uh, be discipled by Jesus himself. He had that offer, and he didn't take it. And, um, and we know that actually some people did do this. G- uh, the disciples say in verse 28, and Peter said, See, we have left our homes and followed you. And um, 
the only way that we're going to be radical with how we use our money, or be generous with our money, loosen our grip on our money, or, or to put the other way, that money will loosen its grip on us, is that when we realize that we are so rich in just having Jesus. Because that's what the disciples said. I have you. And that's what Jesus was offering him. He thought he was offering him this great offer of grace. You can come and follow me and be with me. Yeah, it's costly, but look at how much I'm giving you. And when we know that we're rich in Jesus, that's how we become generous with our money. So Jesus does want us to be rich in the first sense that by giving us himself. But secondly, Jesus also wants, promises to make us rich by giving us the church, by giving us each other, the people that are here. And uh, you look at verse 29, and he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. And uh, what Jesus is saying is, listen, if, you, if you're um, let go of your riches, your, um, uh, your security in this life, I'm going to give you security and riches uh, many times over in this life. And what, you know, what's he talking about? When does that happen? I mean, even in this life, not just in heaven, but in this life. And what he's saying is, I'm going to give you brothers and fathers and sisters and mothers, and that's the church. And, you know, I'll tell you, when we, uh, this is, I guess it's maybe six years ago now, when uh, Shannon and I, I was in a, going to the University of Washington, I was in a PhD program to be a math professor, and we were feeling called to be church planners and to be a pastor. And at that time, we were living in a house down uh, on the east side, down in Bellevue. We lived less than a mile from Shannon's parents. Uh, we had two young children, and God was calling us, and my family lived in the same town. We had a lot of security, a lot of support around us. As we're a young family, we're getting started. I had a plan of where I was going and a career, and God was saying, I want you to leave all that. I want you to leave that comfort. I want you to move across the country 2,000 miles to Missouri, which everyone was telling me was misery, uh, was how you pronounce it. Misery is a terrible place to live. Why would you want to live in St. Louis? And uh, I was going to go to seminary, and, uh, and there was this leaving of mothers and fathers and sisters and security and support. And what happened when we go to St. Louis? I mean, literally, we pulled up our moving truck. There were eight guys waiting there who we'd never met before from the seminary who helped us unload our truck, <laughs> welcomed us. <laughs> and we go and we find a church, and all of a sudden, uh, you know, we're moving to, uh, you know, two time zones away, and, uh, and we're, all of a sudden we have people who are like family there with, within a recent amount of time. And I'll tell you, even though you know, we, we didn't make a lot of money, um, we had our church, uh, Wiser Lake Chapel was here, actually supported us. They, uh, they helped pay for our seminary. Um, and we didn't have a lot of money. But we also, we even had friends who you know, took us to Cardinals games and things like that. And it's not, we weren't trying to find money or blessings, but through the church, God blessed us tremendously with friends and mothers and fathers, support, friends. And, and for many of you, that's happened here. You've moved to Bellingham. This is a new place for you, and this church is that for you. And what that is, is Jesus making good on his promise that you follow me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you riches uh, that you couldn't buy with money. You couldn't buy people with money. I'm going to give you mothers and fathers way more than you have in your immediate family. 
and maybe even people who will love you more than your immediate family, your, uh, that, that will know you more deeply. I'm gonna, and these are things you can't buy. Eternal life you can't buy, I'm going to give you. I'm going to load these riches onto you. And um, what that means is that when Jesus calls us to be generous people, to follow him, to leave everything and follow him, we're getting the better end of the deal. Who's giving more? Who's sacrificing more? Jesus is giving us way more than we're giving him. And so it's with that hope and that confidence in his grace to us uh, that we can trust him and be generous with our wealth. And, and when we do that, when we know Jesus' love for us, his promise to provide for us, his promise that he wants us to be rich with, with friendships and even, even uh, uh, supporting for our needs, um, when we know that, uh, money will begin to loosen its grip on us. It won't have the grip on us that, that, that it always has. And so, you know, may God make us into a, a generous church and may many people experience the riches that Jesus wants us to have here in this church. So let's pray together. Our Lord, we thank you for the challenge of this word. We ask that your Holy Spirit would be um, applying this to each of our lives, ways that we can uh, find uh, trust you with our money, and uh, that we can uh, taste the many riches that Jesus has given us just uh, in himself, in, his, in the gospel, and through the church, through uh, believers that you've put around us and uh, that you would build our confidence. And um, we thank you for the many ways you have blessed us. We thank you for the many ways that you've made true on this promise that you've given to us, that you will bless us many times over uh, in this life. And uh, with that promise, we look to the life to come and to eternal life where we will just be with you, the source of all life. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.